Hello all and welcome to another week of Old Everald and Young James Talk Politics. It is the first Saturday morning in a long time where I can look outside my window and the skies are blue. Um, so, you know, best wishes to everyone out there who's been struggling with the huge wet we've had uh, these past two weeks. I'm here with Everald Compton. How are you, Ev? Well, I'm, I'm, I'm fine, and you're quite right. The sun's coming through my window here too, so, you know, that, that might be a good... Uh, a good omen uh, for us all. So, so let's get into a, a few controversial subjects. What, what, what are you going to start with, James? I'll bow um, <laughs> I, I think one of the biggest stories of the week was uh, Scott Morrison's very carefully manicured and managed tour of flood-affected areas this week. We've seen in the past, whenever Scott Morrison's had to tour a disaster zone, uh, the locals have been um, relentless in yeah. their pursuit of asking the government and demanding from the government why the government hasn't helped, uh, why the government has not been there, um, why the government's responses to climate change, one of the underlying causes of these disasters, has been so inadequate. Um, so what was, the, what was the Prime Minister's office response to that this week to try to avoid that happening? Um, because after all, we saw that down in Tobago, we saw that down in Nalingan with the fires in 2019, Black Summer fires, 2019-2020. Uh, the Prime Minister's office's response was to carefully manicure the press tour so there'd be no exposure to the public, uh, so there'd be no camera shots, no photographs, no filming that was not staged to the letter. Um, and this is the man who wants to be the Prime Minister of the country, who wants to run the country, and he's so fearful of the public that two months out from an election, he can't even show his face to it. Um, so what does that say about the trust yeah, people I'm have in this sure, government. I'm not sure that was his motive. Jane. Now, first of all, I think he handled it badly. But you might remember that, you know, he's often been accused of whenever there's a crisis about anything that he stage manages it so he gets maximum publicity from whatever the crisis is. And so, uh, uh, and, and people were saying on Facebook, well, when's Morrison going to start to cash in on all, all the strife? And, and I think he made a political decision. It wasn't because he wanted to be a nice bloke. He made a political decision and said, well, I mustn't have the cameras following me around. Remember, they were criticised him when he went down to that tragedy in Tasmania where the children were killed on the jumping thing. And he arrived with a press retinue and there was big screaming about it. So I think he, in one way, he made an attempt to vote. But the other way, I think he's a cunning enough politician to know that if you say to the media, I'm going somewhere and you can't take my photo, that will start to cause a stir and highlight the fact that he's going anyway. And, and, and so it was, it was a, another one of his uh, cunning marketing ways, if that's the way to do it, that he didn't want to do it. But then having got there, I would have thought that he might have with something, but then the, 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 uh, one of the shots that came out, because his office started letting out pictures of him and not the media, was one where he's trying to mop up things with a broom and, you know, and what have you, which made people say, well, that's stage management. You know, I bet you Scott doesn't get around his house at home, you know, fixing up the broom and what have you, you know. And so somehow or other he, he connived uh, to make, uh, as having said he didn't want publicity, to connive that he did get it uh, by the way in which he said he wasn't going to have, uh, you know, you know, publicity. So... He's got a strange way of marketing himself. How does it come over to you? Yeah, I mean, like I said, to my mind, that the most harrowing thing here is that 
the deliberate choice not to engage with members of the public. Um, because we've we've seen what's happened in disasters past when he's been when he's tried to engage with members of the public and he's wanted to come in being, you know, the big saviour guy to shake hands and kiss babies and the public's been having none of it. Um, and I guess to me, um, like, like you said, there, there were some photos. That was his personal photographer who he had coming around taking photos. And as you say, they were released by his office rather than the media. Um, I just think it's a, a, sad and story, a sad and sorry state of affairs when the prime minister is visiting a disaster zone and he's unable to, um, because he has proven time and time again that he can't, that he's unable to interact with members of the public in a progressive and constructive way. Um, because he, he's so scared of the potential bad publicity that could be generated by uh, members of the public speaking their mind out against him, that he's just refused to engage with them altogether. Um, and to my mind, that's just, that's really, really underhanded, bad. Like that, these are people who have lost their houses, uh, lost their livelihoods, and he's not even willing to pay them the respect of, you know, a community forum or engaging with the climate protesters in Lismore. Who came to see him? Uh, it, it's a slap in the face to me. Well, well, uh, look, I think it, it all leads on to about how we handle crises. I mean, the fires weren't handled well, well the flood weren't, and every time we have a drought, all they do is hand out money instead of finding out when we're going to get some more water, which is the, you know, the, 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 the important part of the, the process. It comes back to the thing that I've been constantly blazing away with and bashing your ear about about how. We need the Constitution of Australia to be amended to say we'll have a national crisis authority. Now, when I raised it with you, I was raising it in terms of how do we handle the next pandemic instead of having six state governments fighting one another, we need a national crisis authority that would take over and, and run the show. Now, I, I believe that national government has now got not only to handle pandemics, it's got to handle floods and fires and droughts. So that immediately there's one, the Governor General has the power to say that the national authority is in action and it can harness whatever resources it wants to. And the issue of what aid you're going to get and whatever comes from the authority, not by politicians strutting around and saying, this is what I'm going to do, or pretending they're not doing anything or whatever. I, I think we've got to get ourselves organised to handle crises. And so I'm going to have a relentless crusade to have a national crisis authority set up with authority to harness the resources at any three levels of government without argument to get the whole thing happen and not have politicians strutting around, you know, making a, a, an issue, you know, an issue, uh, an issue of it. Yeah. So, I, I, I mean, in, when we've talked about it before, I've big time backed your National Crisis Authority calls. The one thing I'll say, though, is I think there has to be a special appointments process. Maybe you need, like, uh, for appointments to the National Crisis Authority, um, you know, like a three-quarters majority of parliament to vote people in, like to, to appoint the people. That way we get genuinely non-partisan actors in the crisis authority. Because if you just leave appointments up to the government of the day, like who have like the, the head of the crisis authority, et cetera, you'll have the same problems where we do now at governments of the day, appoint people who are friendly to them to the top of the crisis authority and therefore... Oh, no, it, it wouldn't go that way, James. You'd have to have it that... The Constitution says the National Crisis Authority shall be chaired by the Governor-General as a non-political person. The Prime Minister and the six state premiers and the two territory leaders will be on it because they control uh, yeah, yeah, the government. Yeah. And they can have as many public servants around the world, but yep, they're yep. there and they all meet 
and a majority vote of, of the authority says something can happen. So you can't have West Australia saying we won't do it or, or, or New South Wales. Well, a majority vote, you know, decides what will happen. And the, the premiers, they have got to provide the resources that the majority vote says. So you don't have political appointees. And then right. that's the only way to that's the only way to handle it. You need the premier that. Uh, to direct their governments to do what the National Crisis Authority said. You know, and somebody's got to go back and ask the government, you know, whether they can uh, do mm. it. Anyway, I think we can we can blaze away, uh, you know, on that. Now, talking about, you know, politicians misbehaving, you mentioned to me before that Dave Sharma was up to something this week. Tell me what he's been up to. I'm getting a bit older. <laughs> on but, but before we touch on Dave Sharma, there's just one more thing I'd like to say in favour of the National Crisis Authority. Um, we saw Bridget McKenzie, Scott Morrison and Peter Dutton talking about how great it was that um, the Army, the ADF, was able to go in and support on the ground. Um, and not to take anything away from the ADF, because they do provide support in these situations when they're mobilised. Um, Bridget McKenzie was waffling on about how under previous governments the ADF never would have been able to do that, which that is just... Lie, they That's a total lie. We've had That's the ADF the crises for yeah. at least 20 years, if not that. But uh, what I wanted to say was your man, Darren Chester, um, was on the ABC News this morning. And he basically said, yes, it's cool how we're able to mobilise the ADF to deal with these things. But this isn't, this isn't the ADF's primary role. Like, it's, it's the primary role of, um, you know, like we, like we should have, he was saying, a civilian um, body to deal with these things. Because the ADF isn't specifically trained in these crises and when you have on the ground all these different levels all trying to help out like the SES trying to help out the ADF trying to help out individuals trying to help out the fireys trying to help out etc um even with the noblest of intentions it just becomes a logistical nightmare when you yeah, have so many different if agencies. you have a if you have a national crisis exactly exactly they can decide the ADF will come out and this, and this is what the ADF will do or, or, or you know whatever this is what the state emergency services uh, were exactly. And amazing. But to coming back to Bridgeman, even when I was a little boy and there were fires and droughts, uh, the, the government almost invariably called the army out, as you used to say, and they were specifically out to clear the roads and do whatever. And that was a hell of a lot better for them than sitting in the army camp, bored to hell, cleaning their boots and all that. They could get out and, and do something. And that's been happening all my life. So she talked manifest bullshit, but anyway, that's where we go. Now, tell me what Dave Sharma's been doing. So, I mean, you, you have been uh, on the pulpit crusading for this wave of independence, especially female independence, and Dave Sharma's seat is under challenge from Allegra Spender, who is, I believe, the Carla daughter, or, yeah, daughter or granddaughter, yeah, daughter of Carla Zampatti. Yeah, yeah. um, so she's a, you know, a businesswoman in her own right. And a good candidate, and I think she'll do him over. So what's he crying about? So he, um, Carla, not Carla, sorry, Allegra Spender's signs are uh, this, like her political campaign signs, are this nice, like teal colour, sort of sky bluish colour. Um, you know, they got her face on it, talk all about her, et cetera. Um, now, we know the colour of the LNP, the Liberal Party, is like a dark blue, but Dave Sharma's political signs happen to be the same colour as Allegra Spender's signs, um, rather than the usual Liberal blue. Not only that, but someone who's been looking at Dave Sharma's signs, uh, his political signs that he's going to, you know, with his face on them saying Dave Sharma for Wentworth, the signs don't mention the LNP anywhere. They don't have the party logo, uh, they don't have the 
you know, they don't say LMP, they don't say um, Scott Morrison, they make no mention of him anywhere. So it's just really interesting to me how in a, in a seat where the voters of his seat are um, potentially going to revolt against the LNP because of Scott Morrison, because of Matt Canavan, because of George Christensen, because of Barnaby Joyce, um, he's trying to disassociate himself with them from them as much as possible. Labor's been running a campaign. Um, you vote for Dave Sharma, you get Matt Canavan. The point basically being that no matter how noble Dave Sharma's intentions may be, he's being held hostage by uh, the climate denialists and the coal miners in his party, the big coal people. Um, and I just find it very interesting how, yeah, I'm under threat from like a pro-climate, pro-justice for women independent. Dave Sharma's campaign has basically said, well, we don't want to be associated with Scott Morrison. We don't want to be associated with Barnaby Joyce or all these other power players in the party. Um, we're going to try to sort of go out on our own here. So I just think it's a very interesting... Well, well, James, I've seen this happen before all my life. There's always been candidates who felt that their party was letting them down. Now, they couldn't oppose their party, but they pretended they weren't part of it. And, and so Sharma is not the first bloke to do this. This has happened, you know, you know, down the years. And But what it changed, Sharma's bloke, the fact that he put the same colour things as her to make it look as if, you know, people might confuse him and her, just simply telegraphed to the world that he's just frightened as hell of her. And, you know, and the whole issue is that he, he drowned him out. Now, the thing is, I, I would reckon that if I was a Liberal at the moment, money received, well, I wouldn't claim, uh, I think I'd put LNP down in the corner very quietly where you had to have good, good spectacles to see it or something. And, but I, I wouldn't make a highlight of it, and I certainly wouldn't get around mentioning Morrison's name. Mm. But I think to try and pretend you don't belong to the party means that you've really got the panic button. You've hit the panic button, haven't you? And I, I think he's gone, he's gone overboard, uh, you know, in, the, in that. Oh, I mean, like we, we saw what the people of Wentworth can do when Morrison uh, rolled Malcolm Turnbull, or rather when Peter Dutton rolled Malcolm Turnbull and Scott Morrison was the beneficiary. Uh, and they had that protest vote essentially and voted Dr. Karen Phelps in, who in, in many ways is quite similar to um, Allegra Spendi, you know, a very successful woman in her own right, um, pro-action on climate change, still sort of fiscally conservative, but liberal on social issues and that sort of thing. Um, and Allegra Spender fits a similar mould. And I, I really do think, like you say, the fact that Sharma's taking these pretty weirdly out there steps to disassociate oh, himself from the party. Yeah. And I think, I think Trent Zimmerman's going to lose over and, and Jason Polanski and Ziggy Tegel will hold a seat. And I think that if you could, in the state election, that seat is just north of the harbour there, that an unknown independent almost won the darn thing, you know, the... the uh, uh, what's the name, uh, uh, Gladys's old seat. And so I think there are, are messages out there that the independent campaign is picking up. And there are so many people who are saying, look, we're sick of the political establishment. We're sick of political parties that all they're concerned about is power and they use us as cannon fodder so they can get power. And so there's a lot of people out saying, well, we want to vote against all the political parties. And so it would be stupid to go to and vote for Palmer and Hanson, here's the opportunity to go uh, independent and create a, a revolution. Uh, and, and I think that that's happening. And, 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 and I'm going to, as you know, I'm pushing hard as, mm. as possible for it to, uh, 
you know, for, for, for it to happen. And we go there. We better have a chat, you know, uh, uh, James, about Ukraine at the moment. It's now starting to uh, impact on the economy of all the nations involved. I mean, we, you know, we whack sanctions on again for Russia, and I don't believe the sanctions were hard enough. As a matter of fact, I would have fired a few rockets at Putin as well. You know, but but the sanctions, when you have sanctions, it works two ways. The Russians stop supplying us, and various things happen when you start fiddling around with oil and gas, that has worldwide effects. Now, I don't believe we should back off one tiny inch on Putin, but the, the situation comes home to roost, and I think there'll be inflation here in Australia. I'm pretty sure that you're going to be paying, you know, for that Rolls Royce you drive around, James, you're going to be paying $2.50, $3 for your petrol soon. Am I right or wrong? Uh, look, um, <laughs> you shouldn't have said this because now I'm going to get the chance to complain about the infrastructure in Sydney. Um, <laughs> Sydney is a terribly designed city in terms of public transport infrastructure. Yeah. Uh, a large portion of people in a lot of places in the city are reliant on a car not because they necessarily prefer the car, but because the public transport infrastructure is just so shocking. Uh, they built the Northwest Metro to do the Hills District. And in the Hills District, there were, a lot of, there were a lot of buses previous to the Metro. And they said, yeah, we're going to keep the buses when the Metro comes in so people can get to and from the Metro stations. But then when the Metro was built, they got rid of all the buses. So if you want to go to a Metro station, you have to drive. Sydney is a real car city because of how it's been designed I, I the, like, the public infrastructure, which I, I means yeah. um, you're entirely right. Because we're such a car-based city here in Sydney, people are really going to start feeling the pinch as petrol prices climb. I think they're up over $2 in some parts of the country. And as they climb even right, higher, right. I, I, yeah. I feel really sorry for the most vulnerable workers in Sydney who need a car to get around, the ones who are already sort of struggling to put food on the table whose petrol prices have now gone up 70, 80%, um, you know, they're not getting any extra pay to cover this, um, but they've still got to get to and from work somehow. They've still got to get to and from the shops somehow, to and from their kids' school somehow. So, yeah. yeah. Looking, looking at it on the worldwide scene, James, I mean, Ukraine was one of the great producers of food. I mean, Ukraine is like the prairies of America and Canada. And so you now got the food production of Ukraine, which is coming to a stop, and people who relied on that sort of food. And the whole Ukraine economy was not the whole of it, but a substantial part of it blamed on that. So we're now getting the repercussions of this war. And I still come to the point that we haven't been aggressive enough with Putin. We're still doing the old appeasement thing that we did in 1939 when we said we must get involved in the war. And we, we let Hitler take Poland and we let him take Czechoslovakia to stay out of a war and all that did was create the war and, and made it a worse war than it was before. So I think we're not handling the whole thing uh, the whole thing well. And even though we're a long way from Ukraine, the impact of it is, 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 uh, mm. is hitting on us. So I think uh, we've got some dark days ahead on Ukraine. How do you see it? See, I'm... I'm going to disagree there just because I think the calculus is very different with nuclear powers now. Um, I, I back the idea of um, not firing, the, the West not firing a shot at Putin because then Putin might fire shots at us too and that's not the future I want to live in, a future where there is a world war, a world conflict. And I mean, um, the, there, there have been like Zelensky has been calling for a no-fly zone over um, Ukraine and as, as much as I've admired Zelensky, that's something I can't back. 
Because if NATO were to institute a no-fly zone, um, one thing that Putin's right about is he's, like that's basically an act of war because a no-fly zone entails the shooting down of any foreign jet that flies over a country. And if NATO were to start shooting down Russian jets, um, that is an act of war. So I am very happy and pleasantly surprised, really, knowing how many warmongers there are in Western countries that we haven't um, fired any shots ourselves. Now, but I, I do agree like that we need to be giving immense, not just logistical support to people in the Ukraine, but we need to just open our borders to as many Ukrainian refugees as want to come here. I think if we are not going to intervene militarily in the crisis, which I think we shouldn't, then to my mind, we have a humanitarian obligation to do as much as we can for the people whose lives have been displaced, whose lives have been uprooted as a result of this crisis. So if that means taking in lots of Ukrainian refugees, I think we should be doing that. And I think that as a country with, you know, with wide brown lands to share um, is something that we should be really putting our front foot forward with. Well, James, you know, you're saying that, you know, we can't fire bullets at Putin because uh, rockets at Putin because, uh, you know, he, he might, you know, you know, fire back and whatever. But the fact is, Putin has now said that the economic sanctions are an act of war and, and, and the currency things are an act of war and whatever. And he might fire a rocket because of the sanctions. And so the fact that we're not firing a rocket does not stop him from firing one. And I think that's what's wrong with the argument, not the argument, the debate, you know, that we're having. And, and, and by next weekend, it might be a bit clearer and you and I could go into this, but and we're starting to run out of time in our half an hour. We've got a few minutes to go. We've got to talk about our good person of the week and our bad person of the week. And I'll let you, uh, me being an old gentleman, I'll let you go first, James. What, uh, well, I try to be a gentleman anyway, but <laughs> who's your, who's your good, good person of the week? Um, so this is a bit of a domestic and a bit of an obscure one. My uh, good guy of the week is a journalist uh, by the name of Jim Marlowe. Uh, formerly of the ABC, now a pedestrian. Um, there's this fella in Queensland running for a Senate ticket and he's running his campaign primarily on Twitter. His name's Drew Pavlou. And I don't intend to go into great detail about Drew Pavlou because I think he is a vapid bully, in my opinion. And he uses his pulpit online to punch down on vulnerable people, uh, I think. Um, now, Jim Marlowe called him out on Twitter this week and it was just refreshing to see because I, I see Drew Pablo in my feed a lot, punching down on vulnerable communities and spreading some pretty vapid shit about the Chinese-Australian community, which I don't like to see because as we've discussed on this show plenty of times before, um, we're at a time where the Chinese-Australian community is facing attacks on all angles. So it was just nice to see someone, you know, go into bat online for vulnerable communities rather than following the hive mind and, uh, following sort of the, the zeitgeist, if we're going to use really fancy German words, um, and not, you know, following the government's line. So it's, I don't know, we're in a time of big division, big crisis and fear-mongering and all those sorts of things. So it's always refreshing to see and commend people who are willing to stick their necks out like Jim Marlowe did to defend vulnerable communities. Um, it's, you know, it's just a nice story. Yeah, well, that's interesting. I, I've got to change the change of on. I've never heard of this guy you're talking Good. about. Maybe I, maybe I just ignore him or something. But I haven't, you know, you know, haven't heard about him. But it's interesting. Uh, and I'm pleased that there's a journalist or two who are prepared to sort of take a lot of it. Now, my personal week is actually people. I, 
I'm chairman of a United Church charity called Axe uh, uh, that hands out, uh, is based off the Ashley United Church where I go to church and we hand out money to people in need. And this week we've been handing out money, cash grants direct to people who have, we don't give money to charities like Red Cross and say help them. We, we find people we should help. And I've got to say that the political the members of parliament that I contacted to find them, the ones I know, to say, look, can you tell me people in your area who uh, have really been hit and they're not going to get any government money or any insurance money, there's always people who fall down the cracks. And I've got to say that the MPs that I phoned, uh, Shane Newman, Milton Dick, Annika Wells, uh, uh, they, they were out around, they weren't sitting in their offices, they were out around the people who were flooded and they were able to come back to me within hours and say, well, here's Joe Blow here or Jenny Brown there. It was really in strife. And they'd give me their phone numbers and I would phone them to have a chat to them about you know, what their situation was and then arrange to get their bank account details and, and send them uh, $1,000 each. And we've been handing out $1,000 at a time and we'll keep uh, doing it until our money uh, you know, runs out. But, I was amazed at the resilience of people, but also people facing enormous problems. I mean, I came across one family that we gave a where the couple had three children and the three children were severe, uh, uh, you know, uh, their, their children had severe, uh, you know, illness. they were autistic and other things, and they were had to give up all their work, become full-time carers on a carer's pension, which isn't worth having. And they've been flooded out three times since 2011 and no insurance company will cover them. And they were so enormously grateful for the fact that I called up and, and, and we were going to help them. And, 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 and they, were, they, were, they were saying to me, people are, we're going we're gonna to fight our way out of this. We really are, but thank you for the encouragement you're giving. And I thought to myself, you know, if I was in that situation, I'd be ready to give it away. But here it is, they want to stand up and they want to fight. Not that we There's a lot of good people out there, aren't there? There are. Um, in, a, in a similar vein, um, I don't know if you've seen them on Twitter as well, there's a group called the Seek Volunteers of Australia. Yeah. Um, yes, they, they, were, they were down in Melbourne during the lockdowns and they were cooking um, meals, yeah, vegetarian right. meals um, for families who were struggling, families who'd lost their jobs, homeless people, et cetera, people who were hit most by the lockdowns. And the Sikh volunteers all the way from Melbourne uh, drove up to Lismore in the flood-affected areas to cook for people, uh, to cook warm, homemade, healthy, vegetarian meals for people during yeah, such a stressful and worrying time. Yeah, there is good in the world. Ah, that's, that's tremendous. Now, let me tell you the bad year of the week. Stuart Robert, uh, uh, one, one of uh, Morrison's cabinet, uh, is in charge of you know welfare in various ways. Not one of the brightest blokes in the pack at all, and, and, and a Pentecostal, more Pentecostal than uh, uh, than Morrison. He accompanied Morrison up to Lismore, and there were protesters uh, that, that Morrison tried to cover up uh, uh, because he was trying to control the media. There were protesters who were protesting about climate change and about the well, they're in and saying, look, all this is caused by climate change. Now, you can have a debate over the years about whether it is or it isn't, but you can't discard the fact that climate change has got to be an element. Yeah, but he said some pretty rude 
words about them that they, they, they were rotten something or other and you know uh, loony protesters I think the word was but I reckon if I'd been washed out and I was penniless and 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 nothing was was being done and the prime minister was trading around I think I might yell you know and and but he called them crazy loonies whatever and I thought that's, you know, how can any politician think that a person who just lost their house, you can call them a crazy loony? I just thought that was... Yeah, That's, especially as, you know, the Minister for Social Services and Welfare, um, <laughs> yeah. who is meant to be, like, able to, you know, understand what these people, our most, our most vulnerable people, are going through. It's, yeah. Uh, my my dud of the week, um, it's a bit bit um, irrelevant in the global scheme of things but you know we use this segment to talk about little things that pop up in the week of news that we don't really get to talk about is um, Australia played a first test match in 24 years in Pakistan yeah so those of you playing along at home that's the first uh, time we've been in Pakistan since I've been alive because I'm only 22 so um, and the pitch curator prepared an absolute row the match was terrible there was nothing in it for the bowlers it was slow it was boring it was a dirge it was dry it was crap i said it was a dirge already um like it, it just got widely from the cricket community and i sort of feel so sorry for the people of pakistan who've been waiting 24 years for australia to come over only for the pitch curator to prepare a pitch which has been like widely panned sort of probably the worst pitch of the decade um it's just you know hopefully the next match uh, for the good people of Pakistan who've been waiting 24 years to see Australian cricket in their country. Uh, hopefully the next pitch is a bit more lively and a bit more competitive because I'm so happy for the people of that country, a country where so many bad things have happened, um, to be able to see the Australian team tour for the first time in so long. Um, and let's just hope there's a better contest for them in the second match. Well, an interesting comment. I mean, I, I, I noticed that the school both sides made about 500 or something, and, and you and I probably could have made a bit of a few runs on that that, that pitch. And what I found interesting, though, was that the, the I, I remember when the test matches were called off all those years ago because uh, uh, some people took some pot shots at one of the visiting teams, that, you know, and the Sri Lankan team, I think it was, had to be got out of town in a hurry and. And so it was declared it wasn't safe to send a team there. So if you played Pakistan, then the match was usually played in the United Arab Emirates, Sarjah or somewhere. And so the two things, we came back and they might have filled, but also the Australian team were a bit brave in going over because no one knows whether the same lunatic, uh, they were a Muslim fringe mob who, uh, you know, reckon that we defended Allah and all sorts of I would have been a little bit worried about going out to bat that one of these loonies might take a pot shot at me. So I think the Australian team, uh, it didn't happen, thank goodness, but I think it was a, uh, they, they had to go onto the field saying, well, the last time somebody came on this field, somebody took a shot at them. And so yeah. I think that's a, a, yeah, that's a go. Well, James, we, we, we've had a, 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 a good yard, and I think we better call it off. And yep. next week, I'm sure uh, uh, that uh, we'll still be on trip. We need to have a look at COVID next week. I mean, I'm sick of talking about COVID, but because of the floods and because of Ukraine, COVID doesn't get on the news now till about 25 minutes into the half hour, which is one way is a good thing. But I'm just wondering how that's going in the community and what's happening and yeah. and, 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 and can we afford to still ignore it? That, that's, uh, you, know, you know, one of the things we got to do. And we might talk a little bit about 
do a little bit of forecasting about the budget that uh, Josh Frydenberg is going to bring down in about two weeks to buy the election. I want your opinion of what Morrison has got to do to buy the election. If you're Morrison and you look like you're losing and you've got billions of dollars you could play around with, what are you going to promise the Australian people? So I want your forecast on the budget next week. Yeah? Yeah. I'll have a think. Um, and thanks for listening, everyone. Uh, and I will, we've got plenty to talk about next week at this stage. As, as we know, the best laid plans go awry, so we'll see what comes up in the next week. Uh, hopefully good news. But, yeah, well, um, thanks for listening, everyone. We'll see you next week. Thank, thank you, James. It was good to talk. Ciao, all.